Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a political failure amid talk of an intelligence failure that elites in Israel, the Middle East, and in Washington are now having to face for not considering the plight of the Palestinians as they dreamed up a new peace and prosperity plan for the region. Joining us is Nada Hashemi, the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding and associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Welsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. A non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now, he's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Then, with pushback against Harvard students blaming the U.S. for the latest war between Israel and Hamas, and AOC condemning Sunday's rally by Democratic Socialists of America for bigotry and callousness in not rejecting Hamas's horrifying attacks, we will speak with Mitchell Plitnik, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and former vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. A political analyst and a frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy, he served as director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace, and he is the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Then finally, we'll examine the flood of disinformation about the war in Israel on Twitter or X since Elon Musk allows anyone to buy blue check accounts previously restricted to journalists, politicians and business and world leaders, which fake journalists can now use to spread outrageous lies that can be monetized depending on the millions they deceive. Joining us is Emma Steiner, the Information Accountability Project Manager at Common Cause, where she leads efforts to protect voters from disinformation related to voting rights and democracy and to help defend against lies that undermine the integrity of our elections. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, Nada Hashemi, who's the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now. He is the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashemi. Thanks, Ian. So, Nada, how come our government is so blind not to notice that the Palestinian people, increasingly humiliated, increasingly marginalized, under Netanyahu's religious nationalist government, the settlers have been running rampant on the Palestinians. They have 
no real representation on the West Bank except this aging 85-year-old out-of-touch leader and this incredibly corrupt Palestinian authorities. Little wonder they're frustrated. And then on in Gaza, you've got this religious fanatical group, Hamas, and you don't know how popular or unpopular they are because they are totalitarian in their rule. So, you know, if I was a Palestinian, I'd be increasingly frustrated. And yet, just only a week ago, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was, was talking about how wonderful it is that things are so calm in the Middle East because of the Abram Accords, that we're going to make this deal between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, and, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. I mean, what planet are these people on? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the lessons that we've learned over the last few days is how completely out of touch um, the Biden administration and his foreign policy team uh, have been with respect to the Middle East. I think part of the problem here is that our senior foreign policy officials, but also the broader foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C., spend so much time um, hanging out with Arab dictators and their lobbyists and also um, hanging out with um, um, representatives of Bibi Netanyahu and the pro-Likud lobby in Washington, D.C., that they are completely disconnected to the underlying realities on the ground um, in the region um, that have in many ways produced this crisis. Um, just to cite one, I think, obvious point that needs to be made is that the Biden administration was very much focused on normalization between uh, Netanyahu, Israel, and Arab dictators in the context of the Abraham Accords. They were hoping to you know, have this uh, wonderful celebration in Washington where the Saudi crown prince and Netanyahu would come and Biden would, you know, um, welcome these two leaders together and they would proclaim um, the arrival of peace in the Middle East. That's completely blown up in Biden's face because, you know, he completely ignored the, the plight of the Palestinians, as you said in your introduction. Uh, the assumption of the, Arab, the Abraham Accords and the Israeli-Saudi normalization was that the Palestine question no longer mattered. Now, if anyone knows anything about the origins of the Abraham Accords, this was a, a deal cooked up by the notorious um, son-in-law of Donald Trump and two Arab dictators, um, MBS in Saudi Arabia and the, the president of the UAE. Just on that ground alone, any deal cooked up by that motley crew um, should be subject to deep skepticism. The fact that it wasn't and it was widely embraced, not just by the Republicans in the White House, but also the Biden administration, um, is one of those clarifying moments. It, 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 it teaches us how completely out of touch our um, foreign policy class, our political leaders are with respect to core realities and um, the views of many people in the Middle East. Um, you know, if, if the Biden administration would have talked to any expert who knows anything about the politics of the region, they could have told you that an explosion like this is coming to ignore the Palestine question is to do so at your own peril. That's exactly what the Biden administration has done. And now it finds itself, you know, in this in this dilemma, having all of this energy and um, focus on on Saudi Israeli normalization completely blow up in its face, not knowing what to do except to double down on support for Netanyahu as he unleashes his firepower on the people of Gaza. So this is a, I think, a turning point in many ways. No one knows how it's going to unfold, in what direction, but it's good that we can have this conversation to try and bring some light to this um, this tragedy that is unfolding before our eyes. 
Well, talk about reward failure. I mean, the idea that Jared Kushner got $2 billion from Mohammed bin Salman against uh, the advice of his own uh, sovereign wealth fund. And essentially, Jared Kushner was a stenographer for Bibi Netanyahu. He used to, when he visited the, fa- the Kushner family, would stay in Kushner's room when he was a teenager. And by the way, when when the Trump administration was doing <laughs> their thing and Kushner was promoting the Abram Accords, they invited all these Middle Eastern businessmen from the various countries in the neighborhood uh, to come and talk about a joyous future with all the high-tech sort of Silicon Valley stuff, fusing Israel together with the UAE, etc. But the Palestinians boycotted the meetings. I mean, wouldn't that have been a clue, Jared? Um, hello? Yeah, you, you would think so, right, Ian? But I think this is the problem when it comes to U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. Um, my colleague, Sarah Leo Whitson, has observed correctly that U.S. foreign policy is the least democratic part of our political system. It's largely shaped, particularly on the Middle East, by lobbyists, by business interests, by um, representatives of of allies in the region. There's very little public accountability and scrutiny in terms of having the views of the average American citizen represented in in, in U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. And so if if that's the world that you hang out with, then, of course, the Abraham Accords are going to make sense from that perspective, because it's a great business opportunity for businesses, particularly the arms industry, to, you know, make huge amounts of money if there's a formalized agreement between Israel um, and, um, and and Saudi Arabia and other Arab dictatorships that have a lot of oil. Um, and then they can just, you know, celebrate this wonderful dawning of a new era in the Middle East where everything will be, you know, fine and dandy. But of course, the reality is, you know, completely different uh, on the ground for people who are living it. And of course, a big part of the deal with Saudi Arabia is that the Saudis want a a security guarantee from the United States along with nuclear technology, supposedly for civilian nuclear power, but that would then produce plutonium. So it's hardly a coincidence, uh, Nada, that Iran would be the big loser in that deal and that Iran clearly has ties with both Hezbollah and Hamas. It just seems more than coincidental that this strike against Israel by Hamas is a, is, is a way to say we're not going away, we're not irrelevant, and the Arab street will be with us. How do you see it? Yeah, I have a slightly different take on Iran. I think Iran actually, from its perspective, well, number one, Iran is very happy by these developments because it can hijack this narrative of Palestinian suffering uh, to divert attention from Iran's own domestic turmoil and crisis of legitimacy that you know we've talked about before over the last year with respect to the human rights and women's rights protests. So Iran benefits that way. Um, but I think in terms of the, the regional deals that are being struck between Arab dictators and Israel, Iran, I think, um, while at one level it doesn't like it, in another level, on another level, it actually does like those deals because it sharpens the differences between um, Iran, which claims to support the Palestinians and Arab dictators, they're all jumping in bed with Netanyahu. Um, you know, from the ideology of the Islamic Republic, they claim to be the biggest champions of oppressed Muslims around the world, which is a complete, you know, lie because they don't care about the Uyghur Muslims, right, or the or, or other Muslims that are suffering. But on the Palestine question, this has been a staple of the discourse of the Islamic Republic for the last twenty for the last forty years. 
And so when 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 regional uh, countries in the Arab world, you know, abandon the Palestinians so boldly and nakedly by signing deals with Israel, that helps Iran present itself as the only regional country that cares about the Palestinians. And, and, and now it's trying to, I think, use this uh, recent upsurge in violence by saying, look, we um, are the only regional country that's supporting the Palestinians. Um, other Arab countries have all abandoned them and have signed these secret deals. Um, and so Iran is hoping to try and reestablish its credibility on the Arab street where support for the Palestinians is very strong and anger over these normalization deals is very strong. So I think from that perspective, Iran is sort of watching these developments with a lot of joy and a lot of glee. It's happy to be blamed, you know, for um, supporting Hamas because it wants to claim that it's, you know, on the side of the Palestinians, even though Hamas doesn't represent all Palestinians. But I think that's how things are playing out in the minds of Tehran's ruling elite. Well, the country that's really the, the loser here, to my mind, Nader, is uh, Ukraine. The Republicans, of course, cut funds in order for the government to operate for 45 days, and now it's not operating at all. But if indeed the House Republicans can get their act together and find a new speaker, or even the old guy, <laughs> he may come back in the chaos, uh, Kevin McCarthy. They're going to be talking about giving money to Israel, right, not, not to Ukraine. Right. No, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, just ask yourself, who's talked about Ukraine over the last few days since his crisis erupted uh, in the Middle East? No one. And that benefits Vladimir Putin. I mean, he, he wants to see global attention shifted away from his, you know, aggression and war crimes in Ukraine and to have people talk about other issues. So that is one of the tragedies here. Um, um, there's also a question of, you know, U.S. aid, if it's going to be sent in greater number to Israel, that suggests there's less to send to Ukraine where it's desperately needed to survive um, Putin's aggression. So I think the Ukrainians also, I agree with you, uh, Ian, are one of the losers um, in this equation. And there's no comparison between the fact that Ukraine is at war and its country is being systematically destroyed by Putin, who's killing civilians uh, wantonly, and this attack on, by Hamas, as hideous as it is, is now resulting in a massive military strike on Gaza, which is disproportionate, of course, and hardly the whole country's not threatened now. That's not to say that other shoes could drop. Hezbollah could join in, right? Does, does that concern you? It does, because it would mean the expansion of the war I'm 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 in the camp where I'd be skeptical if they, you know, engage in um, a full scale intervention in this conflict by bombing um, Israel, knowing that there'll be severe retaliation. If you know anything about what's going on in Lebanon today, the country is deeply broken and deeply fractured. And if Hezbollah starts a war with Israel, um, it's not just Hezbollah who's going to pay a price. It's going to be um, uh, all of Lebanon that'll pay a price. And Lebanon right now is hanging by a thread in terms of, you know, the socioeconomic conditions where the vast majority of Lebanese now are living in poverty. And, and at the end of the day, you know, Hezbollah has to exist within Lebanon. Uh, they, they took a severe beating in terms of their reputation in 2006 when they, you know, provoked the conflict with Israel. And I think that's, that's, that, that's on the minds of Hezbollah leaders that, you know, 
they, it's easy to start a war, but you know how it ends will not end very very nicely for Hezbollah within the context of a Lebanese state, where they'll be severely criticized for bringing death and destruction, you know, onto Lebanon at a very vulnerable time in its existence. Right, but you just mentioned Putin a minute ago, Nada. Wouldn't Putin be happy to have a, a broader war in the Middle East to take take the heat off uh, Ukraine? And oh yeah, uh, he would, he would. But I'm not sure Putin can just. Um, snap his fingers and 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 have that come about. I mean, he he supports Iran. He supports Syria at a, a yeah, Syria. He supports Syria very strongly. But I don't think it's it's a question of him snapping his fingers and then all of his allies, um, you know, um, jumping to his command. Um, Putin does also have very good and cordial relationships with Israel as well. So I really don't um, you know see him having the capacity to expand this war. I think his hands are full very much with what's happening in Ukraine. But yes, if he could, I mean, I think he would he would jump for joy if this war expanded to bring in Lebanon and Iran. Well, there's a possibility, isn't there, that uh, if things do escalate, that Israel might strike in Syria against uh, both Hamas and Hezbollah, who have offices there. Correct. Israel has done that repeatedly and with impunity for years, so it would be, in one sense, nothing new. Um, um, these types of attacks on on Hezbollah and Iranian targets in Syria, um, you know, happen really at Israeli will. So I don't think that will necessarily expand this war. Um, what you pointed to earlier Ian, is something to watch for. If for whatever reason, you know, Hezbollah. Um, gets involved in this war. And I think ideologically, they very much want to, because, you know, they're fundamentally, you know, um, ideologically oriented against Israel and what it stands for. Um, and they they don't recognize the, the existence of Israel and, and for ideological reasons. But at the same time, I think Hezbollah leaders know, as I said a moment ago, Lebanon will pay a huge price and, and Lebanon's and, and Hezbollah's status within the Lebanese state will take a huge hit by other Lebanese factions. So just in closing, uh, Nada Hashemi, do you think that if if the war were to expand in the north with Hezbollah, would uh, Israel be likely then to strike at the source, at Iran itself? Well, I think once you go that, that route, Ian, then it becomes a larger regional war. And I don't think Israel is willing to hit Iran without the approval of the United States. Uh, I don't think it has the capacity, the ability, and of course the United States will take the blame um, for um, any any Israeli strike, and that basically means you know a completely different Middle East. Everything that I'm hearing from from Joe Biden is that he wants to move away from the Middle East. He doesn't want to get dragged into another war. So I think there's uh, there's a roadblock there in terms of Israel's you know interest in, in expanding this to Iran. You know if you watch Fox News and you listen to some of these you know uh, pro Likud talking heads, they're very much interested in in expanding this to Iran. But that that's that's, I think, a bridge too far. That's biting off more than you can chew, and it basically means, you know, the Middle East will, will erupt into a broader regional war that will consume everyone. So it's something to watch for. I don't think it's going to happen. Well, just in closing, I mean, we know that Obama tried to get out of the Middle East and pivot towards Asia, in particular China, and he got drawn in, and now Biden, who wants to do the same thing, pivot away from the Middle East, and now he's being sucked in. I mean, there's something about the Middle East uh, where you can't sort of extricate yourself in a way. The agony comes back to bite you. 
And, and, and the agony, I would add, Ian, is exacerbated by failed, short-sighted U.S.-led policies that focus on investing in dictators and repressive regimes and not in the peoples of the region. There's, you know, zero interest in investing in development, democracy, human rights. I mean, all of the themes that the Biden administration have said are at the core of the conflict in Ukraine, you know, standing up for democracy versus autocracy the rule of law, opposing annexation, occupation, none of those principles are applied by the Biden administration in the context of the Middle East. In fact, the reverse are applied. And so I think, you know, the problems of the Middle East are many. I don't think they come from outside of the region. They're largely a function of the, you know, corrupt rule of ruling elites and, and dictators. But U.S. foreign policy, I think, has been a big problem. I'm hoping that if there's anything good that can come out of the tragedy that we're watching in Israel-Palestine, perhaps down the road there might be an attempt to sort of rethink the assumptions that have formed U.S. policy, Western policy toward the Middle East. And if that does happen, then perhaps there might be a silver lining in the, the horror show that we're watching in the region today. Well, Nada Hashemi, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nada Hashemi, who's the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into pushback against Harvard students blaming the U.S. for the latest war between Israel and Hamas and AOC condemning Sunday's rally by Democratic Socialists of America for bigotry and callousness in not rejecting Hamas's horrifying attacks. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mitchell Plitnik, who is the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace, and is the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mitchell Plitnik. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Mitchell. And today, uh, President Biden condemned the Hamas attack on Israel, where about 1,000 Israelis have been killed and 150 have been taken hostage. He said this is terrorism. And, of course, the situation is still dire, and I guess at some point or other there may well be a ground invasion. But at the moment, the Israeli Air Force is pounding Gaza, and Hamas has said that they will start killing the hostages one by one, according to the Israeli airstrikes as they intensify. So among the hostages is a grandmother who's a peace activist, Vivian Silva. Do you know her at all, right. Mitchell? 
Um, I don't know her, but she is a friend of uh, several friends of mine. Uh huh. What can you tell us about her? I mean, uh, as I understand it, she she's an Israeli feminist who has uh, you know dedicated her life to peace activism and uh, working. And I think this is particularly important: working with Palestinians to stand together for you know justice and, and peace in uh, for all the people in the region. So, Mitchell, as an Israeli peace activist or activist for peace in between the Palestinians and Israel, of course, it couldn't be worse. But one of the things that's happening here in the United States in terms of protests, there was a protest in New York by the New York chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, and a thousand people showed up in uh, New York. And this has led to a lot of criticism, and including criticism from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said Mm -hmm. it should not be hard to shut down hatred and anti-Semitism when we see it. Uh, The bigotry and callousness expressed in Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. It also did not speak for the thousands of New Yorkers who are capable of rejecting Hamas's horrifying attacks against innocent civilians as well as the grave injustices and violence Palestinians face under occupation. So AOC is basically making the point that you can have two thoughts in your head at the same time, which seems to be rare in amongst political oh. activists, and that is that you can be in support of the Palestinians and in solidarity with their suffering at the hands of the Israelis, but uh-huh. that doesn't mean you have to support a bunch of religious fanatics and terrorists. So I, I mean, I I've seen a lot of different reports as to exactly what this rally uh, was about and what was said there. Um, it is it, one of the things that I think is important. It, it, you know, sort of stepping back from this specific rally, where at least to my mind, it, it's unclear what the what the message was. Um, I think it is important that people be able to protest and and stand uh, stand up for Palestinians in Gaza who are right now facing just an enormous onslaught and have no protection, um, nowhere to go, uh, nowhere to hide, and you know, and and are facing something that you know the the death toll in Gaza has gotten almost as high as that in Israel, and this is only the beginning. Uh, of what there is to expect. So I think there needs to be room uh, to to stand with those people while at the same time, um, you know, if there, I, I think it should be unambiguous that what Hamas did on, uh, on Saturday was a massive war crime, uh, completely unacceptable, uh, and something that, uh, you know, nothing, no circumstance can excuse, uh, while at the same time, I think also, we need to be able to look at that and uh, and understand that the U.S. and Israel have uh, you know have have cut off options to the Palestinians uh, that 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 are nonviolent. Uh, they've made those unfeasible. Uh, again, it's not an excuse for what Hamas did. It's not a justification by any means. This was a massive crime, but it's also when you when you cut off all forms of nonviolent uh, uh, action that, and, and make, make them either impossible or unproductive, 
this is this is this kind of thing is what is naturally going to happen. But it seems, though, Mitchell, that inherently the problem here is that the Palestinian people just don't have any representation on the West Bank. They've got this sclerotic leadership that's out of touch and incredibly corrupt with the with the Palestinian Authority, and in Hamas they've got this religious fanatical group, the Hamas, who won't <laughs> brook any opposition to them. Some people, have, reporters I've talked to have been there, said, you know, they crack down on any dissent, so it's hard to know mm-hmm. exactly what the local people feel about them, but apparently they're not entirely popular. So isn't this the problem, is that, you know, if, if I were a Palestinian, I'd be so frustrated by this, this double whammy. You've got the the humiliating treatment by the Israelis, which is accelerated under uh, Netanyahu and his religious nationalist government. The settlers are running roughshod over the Palestinians. And on top of that, you've got nobody that, to represent you the, except you know corrupt officials on, on the West Bank and religious nuts on the, in Gaza. So I, I, I certainly uh, agree the Palestinians uh, suffer from a dearth of, uh, of leadership, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. But that, I mean, and that is a problem. Um, I don't know if it is the problem, because I think um, it does not necessitate, frankly, war crimes. Uh, it does not necessitate apartheid. Uh, it certainly does not necessitate uh, the sort of, you know, that, that, that's on the Israeli side. And then we can talk about, you know, U.S. policy. And, and we are, in, you know, in the, in the last analysis, we're talking about protests, right, that happened in the U.S. So the question is one of U.S. policy. And this administration in particular uh, has done absolutely nothing to advance Palestinian rights, has in fact shown itself to be hostile to Palestinian rights uh, or indifferent at best. Uh, and has it, it's going to it is the first uh, administration uh, since this conflict began that has made no effort whatsoever to resolve it or even make any progress on it, uh, and instead has lavished one gift after another on this far right authoritarian government in Israel, and has worked night and day to undermine the last bit of political leverage that Palestinians have, which is of course, the, the normalization of relations between Israel and Arab states. And that was a process that started under Donald Trump, but it's one that, that Joe Biden has taken up with uh, remarkable enthusiasm uh, and has, has labored day and night to take away the last, uh, the, the last real diplomatic uh, option that Palestinians have. So, you know, again, I come back to the idea that uh, Americans need to speak out about this and need to speak out more than anything else about the policies of our own government uh, and how they have fed into this. And I think we need to be able to do that. And instead, what we've seen, we just saw, uh, you know, this afternoon, uh, President uh, President Biden uh, make a speech about uh, where he expressed his deep concern for uh, uh, the well-being of Israelis, which is important, but he made no mention whatsoever about uh, the well-being of Palestinians, protecting Palestinians from the massive Israeli war crimes that are going on right now. And I think that on a, as a matter of principle, we have to be able to stand up and say one war crime does not justify another, just as Israel's, Israel's apartheid does not justify what Hamas did on Saturday. Neither does that action justify 
the the slaughter, literally the slaughter that Israel is engaging in in Gaza right now. And that is something that the United States is is not just tolerating, it's it's enthusiastically cheering up. Well, the other incident that uh, that has angered a number of Americans, and in particular the political class that you know blindly supports Israel, as you know, the power of APAC is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And ironically, now, you know, while the Republicans are cutting off money for Ukraine, which is in the middle of a real war where their cities are being destroyed, mm-hmm. at the same time they they can't wait to throw some more money Israel's way if they can get their act together and form a, a, a functioning House of Representatives. But there was a, a lot of pushback. A coalition of various student groups at Harvard uh, wrote a, a letter mm-hmm. that basically blames the U.S. in large part for what's happening in Israel and in particular yeah. in, in Gaza, and that's uh, offended a lot of people. So that's the question I would ask you as a peace activist is, mm-hmm. I don't understand, you know, for example, a lot of people on the political left in this country, in effect, blame the United States for the war on Ukraine and not Putin because of the, mm-hmm. of the expansion of NATO. And that seems mm-hmm. insane. I mean, Putin is the guy that's murdering Ukrainian civilians right, left and center and destroying their country. So mm-hmm. this also extends to this notion of, basically uh, blaming the U.S. for what's happening when, in fact, it's Netanyahu who surely takes some blame and the treatment of the Palestinians over what's... We're getting, what, 75 years of this? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's... So, Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, on I, I, some level, I, I would resist the comparison. Um, I think, uh, you know... Clearly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a war of choice. Um, I think the, the argument I reject there is the idea that Putin had no choice, that he was forced into uh, uh, invading Ukraine by the various machinations at, uh, of uh, the U.S. and NATO. At the same time, I, I would also resist the idea that NATO expansion had nothing to do with this. I think that that is wrong, too. And I think 30 years of U.S. policy uh, since the end of the Cold War, and, you know, look, we've had people from, from the left, the right, people who were ambassadors to, uh, to Russia, U.S. ambassadors to Russia, people from, from Noam Chomsky to Henry Kissinger uh, saying for 30 years that if NATO keeps expanding, Russia was going to, to do something just like this. So when it happens, I, I think it's, it's kind of absurd to, to contend that the two are not connected. That being said, this was a war of choice. Putin had other options. He could have done other things. Uh, it could have done them for years rather than pursue this particular course. So there's no question in my mind that's a war of choice. When uh, we look at the, the Harvard letter, I think the Harvard letter was very, very badly framed. Um, the, the idea that the United that U.S. policy has a lot to do with what's happening is absolutely true. Uh, uh, it has, the, the, to my mind, there's no question, the U.S. is the, is the actor that has had the most choice uh, in this entire mess for the past at least 50 years um, and has repeatedly pursued policies that were doomed to failure uh, at best and, and intentionally making the conflict worse uh, and, uh, at worst. Um, the, 
I mean, we can we can list many of them, but it, it, it basically comes back to what I said before, which is the carte blanche that US, the U.S. gives to Israel, the protection and impunity the U.S. gives to Israel, that dictates Israel's own policy choices, and it makes the Palestinians ever more desperate. That has been U.S. policy through successive administrations, but never more so than this one. This administration is as bad as Trump, uh, as bad as, as any that has come before it in that regard. So I do think the U.S. has a lot to answer for. That being said, when the Harvard Letters frames this situation as the U.S. is solely responsible or Israeli apartheid is solely responsible for, for what happened, for what Hamas did over the weekend, that is an awful framing because, no, <laughs> the, the, the crime was still committed by Hamas. The decision was made by Hamas to take this action. Um, we can talk about the conditions that, that brought that decision uh, uh, about, and that I think it's important that we do so. But there's no question, this was a heinous crime. It was a war crime. It was a crime against humanity, the scope of which we still don't know. Uh, and the idea that you're, it's one thing, I think, to put out a letter to say, occupied people will fight back and will do some things that, that you know, we've, we find abhorrent. Uh, when they're given no other choice. I think that's one thing to, to say that. It's another thing to say when something like this happens, the people who did it have no responsibility, no agency in the decision. They were, you know, they were essentially forced to do it. Uh, it's just not true. And of course, it's going to be pushed back because it's wrong. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Mitchell, clearly the situation is going to get so much worse. I think there's a to lust for vengeance. I'm not there, but I can feel it almost in the words of the military mm -hmm. leader and, and others. And I get the impression that there's a determination on the part of Israel to try and eradicate Hamas once and for all, which doesn't seem mm -hmm. to be a practical idea. And you've got all of this collateral damage because of this is the most crowded place on the earth. And you know, Israel's telling the Palestinian people in, in the Gaza Strip to get out of the way, but they've got nowhere to go. So, right. to my mind, this is just going to get worse, and I don't see any any hope on the horizon here to stop this because yeah. the blood is boiling in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, you know some people have called this Israel's nine eleven, and I think that 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 terminology is more apt than people often realize uh, because I think that is exactly how Israel is reacting. Uh, very much the same as the United States did after September 11th, 2001. Uh, and we saw what that caused. That got us into two decades of the global war on terror, killing, uh, you know, just untold numbers of, of, of people, including a great many Americans, you know, doing enormous damage to our own economy and the global economy, uh, causing more death and destruction. And I think Israel is reacting the same way. And a, Kind of sad to say that uh, the United States is supporting Israel in that uh, in, in moving in that direction. So we've learned nothing. Israel has learned nothing. And in the end, uh, this will make everything worse because Israel can kill. And there's no question about it. Israel could kill all two million people in Gaza. Uh, for every person that they kill, there's going to be uh, ten more coming up who who utterly hate Israel forever in the most irrational ways and, and the most dangerous ways. So this, this benefits, this response benefits no one. It is not going to help Israel. It's not going to make Israel any safer or more secure. Uh, vengeance for the sake of vengeance only gets you more vengeance.
Well, Mitchell Plitting, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Mitchell Plitnick, who's the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and the former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. We're going to take a restation break back examining the flood of disinformation about the war in Israel on Twitter and X since Elon Musk now allows anyone to buy blue check accounts that fake journalists can now use to spread outrageous lies that can be monetized depending upon the millions they deceive. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emma Steiner, who's Common Cause's Information Accountability Project Manager, where she leads efforts to protect voters from disinformation related to voting rights and democracy, and to help defend against lies that undermine the integrity of our elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emma Steiner. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Emma, and you're quoted in an article at the Huffington Post, Twitter's monetization for blue check accounts may be fueling fake news on Israel-Palestine. And apparently, unlike in past years, nearly every Twitter or ex-user can now pay for a blue check mark, which previously indicated someone was a journalist or uh, a public figure, I mean, politicians, uh, presidents, leaders around the world use Twitter now X to verify and of course their identities have been verified so now you have people who can just pay money and pose as prominent war reporters or whatever posting all kinds of disinformation and recycling old pieces of footage to make it seem uh, like they're maybe they're on the front line themselves so this seems like a really dangerous trend. How does it strike you? Well, the way that the system was set up previously, like you said, um, anyone who was a public figure or someone who's seen as an authority on a subject could be verified. And I think that impression has lingered, even though the system has changed. So now we have a situation where uh, people are looking for reputable sources and quality information about breaking news events. And instead, they're finding that anyone who has paid, you know, $8 a month can post, you know, excessively wild claims on this platform and receive amplification in the feed uh, so that more and more eyes are on it. Well, there's one post that's had 3.9 million views, apparently claimed that Hamas had bragged of purchasing U.S.-funded weapons from Ukraine. So it could have the fingerprints of foreign actors in terms of propaganda. The Russians and others are active in that sphere. Is this what's happening? 
Uh, it's certainly possible because to the best of my knowledge, uh, Twitter has laid off all policy staff who were working on detecting foreign disinformation networks. So um, they're in kind of a blind spot right now at detecting any sort of foreign influence on the platform. Adding to that is this issue of organic disinformation where people are incentivized by the fact that they can receive payouts from Twitter for uh, ad revenue for engagement on posts. Um, they're now incentivized to post uh, exceptionally wild claims and completely false news. So if you just get a whole bunch of hits because you put out outrageous stuff, you make money? Is that what Elon Musk has now turned Twitter into? Uh, if you've applied to receive ad revenue from engagement on posts, yes. Well, this is clearly <laughs> detrimental. I mean, we are in post-truth America, and you know, the object of my program background briefing is to try and recreate or restore a fact-based community in post-truth America. But it seems like Elon Musk is, is taking us in the opposite direction. What's your sense then of how much worse it could get with AI tools and in particular deep fakes? Are we already there or is that on the horizon? I think it's a developing issue, but one thing I'm concerned about is that uh, generative AI essentially lowers the threshold of work needed to create disinformation. Uh, it makes it much easier to produce. And while there's still an issue in finding a way to get it out there, it makes the amount of labor that needs to go into creating uh, news designed to go viral much smaller, um, meaning that it's essentially a tool to optimize the proliferation of disinformation. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of specific election disinformation uh, concerning AI, but uh, it's definitely something that's on the horizon. And I am pretty concerned that Twitter no longer seems to have the staff for the tools to detect it. So does anybody know why Elon Musk is doing this? Is he an anarchist or something? I know he's a sort of right-wing troll who loves to sort of anger liberals or own the libs, as they say. But do you have any idea why he's doing what he's doing? Uh, I think at a certain point you can view Elon Musk as a uh, subject of online radicalization himself. Uh, you can see that just years ago he had much more anodyne, uh, more less partisan posts, but over the past few months, and especially since his takeover, he seems to have uh, somewhat fully adopted the beliefs of some of the most extreme partisans on the platform and in, is in fact cultivating an audience like that. Uh, a lot of his actions in rolling back content moderation and uh, in making sure that this type of disinformation can spread can almost be seen as trying to appease that new audience. And also because he himself has come to believe their claims of censorship, their claims of uh, oppression and claims that uh, their, you know, ironically false information is being suppressed. So his answer to censorship is fake news? I, I believe mean, so. That's pretty surreal. Um, but it's, it's obviously happening. I mean, the Huffington Post article identifies Suleiman Ahmed, who claimed in a tweet or whatever they call the X thing, uh, that Israeli forces had bombed the St. Porphyrius 
Orthodox Church in Gaza. And then the church itself uh, then said, no, nothing's happened. But nevertheless, this uh, had garnered three million views, according to Exus Metrics. And this Ahmed guy is completely unapologetic. And by the way, he runs a YouTube account dedicated to Andrew Tate News. And Andrew Tate is one of the most obnoxious people on the planet, is he not? Uh, I mean, this is like a, a sewer, isn't it? Yeah, I think the church example is a perfect example of how um, people are not only incentivized to post this kind of wild news for engagement, but they're in fact financially benefiting from it. Um, I think Huffington Post found that the account that spread this was enrolled in the monetization program. And so in all likelihood, they'll receive a check from Twitter for creating this fake news, um, thus directly incentivizing it. So... What can be done, though? I mean, uh, Elon Musk is supposedly the richest man on the planet, or maybe the second richest, but obviously we live in a money-driven culture, and of course you work in politics detecting how misinformation impacts elections, etc. And we know that our our political system is money-driven as well. Is there any way to deal with this? Is there any legislative or legal way to try and curb what what Elon Musk is doing? I think that what's happening uh, to Twitter in the EU is a good example of how there are existing accountability mechanisms there that can be used to bring greater transparency to social media platforms, but also hold them accountable and make sure that they keep disinformation in check. Um, I just saw the news that an EU commissioner just warned Musk about the spread of illegal and uh, disinformation content on the platform with regards to the past few days in news. And that's one example of how uh, eventually the platform will be made to comply with at least European regulations, which could serve as a model for uh, American legislative action. Well, is there anything in the pipeline? I know, actually, Musk apparently had briefings on Capitol Hill about AI, but I don't know whether anybody's holding him accountable for what his platform is doing now. Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of people remain enamored with the idea of Musk as a tech genius who can help deliver us from uh, the evils of harmful technology. But I think there are a growing number of people who recognize that he presents a threat to users online in terms of access to reliable information in spaces free of uh, hatred and extremism. And I think that what's going to come out of that is uh, legislative measures to ensure more transparency around social media platforms and how they operate, but also ensuring that they are tackling issues of hate and extremism. So, If this unfolding war between Israel and Hamas is now the target of disinformation, which is flooding the Twitter or X platform, and people are making money out of of promoting lies and misinformation, this seems to me to be a real portent of what's going to be happening next year in this critical election year, isn't it? I mean, is this kind of a dress rehearsal? Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from this, which uh, the foremost of which is that Twitter is no longer a reliable portal for breaking news. Uh, It's almost impossible to distinguish true from false on there, especially due to the new verification schema. 
Uh, I think that in the critical post-election period when votes are being counted and before certification, which is when we saw spikes in disinformation in 2020, um, you know, that eventually led to the insurrection on January 6th. I think that in that period, we're probably going to see quite a lot of disinformation um, operating at the same pace as this sort of event and um, with potentially the same result of, you know, widespread confusion and a lack of recourse to authoritative news sources. But can world leaders, uh, people like President Biden and others who use X or Twitter, can they either boycott it and and what's what's the replacement? What's the substitute? If these blue check accounts were there to protect and identify credible, famous politicians and journalists, etc., and now it's a free for all because all you do is have to pay money and you can be, you know, on the same level as a President Biden. What can Biden and others do? I mean, who's going to start boycotting and where? And what's the alternative? I know that there's been some alternative sites that have been proposed and developed that are continuing to gain in users, such as Blue Sky, Mastodon, and even Meta's competitor Threads. But I think at the end of the day, Twitter is still one of the premier platforms for political communication. It's going to be difficult for people to not only adjust to a shift to other platforms, but to stop relying on it as a source of news and uh, ways of discussing policy. So Zuckerberg's attempt to, you know, steal from Twitter, from Musk, that's not working? There was a flurry when it first came out, wasn't there? But I guess it's not, it just, well, I guess the better question is, why is it not working? Why can't somebody come up with a better mousetrap, given how toxic Musk has made Twitter? I'm not sure. I think that the way that Twitter is designed is particularly appealing to users and that sites that try to imitate it are somehow unable to capture the magic that drew people to Twitter in the first place, whether it's the, you know, instantaneous uh, reception of information or the fact that you can communicate with people all over the world. There has to be some way to create a platform that can do all of this without uh, resorting to the same sort of lack of moderation and uh, paying uh, fealty to extremists that Elon Musk has done. So do you think he spent $44 billion uh, to do this? Is, it, is this the payoff that, because uh, people wondered at the time why he overpaid it so much, and it's it's lost, uh, what, half of its uh, advertising revenue since he started? In fact, he, he blamed the loss of ad revenue on the Jews. Again, this guy is, is just outrageous. Yeah, I think he was backed into it by the fact that a court was going to enforce the deal, but now that he is the owner of it, he's going to do everything possible to diminish its utility, um, whether out of vengeance, ideological motives, or just pure whim. He is attempting to dismantle everything that made it what it was and uh, make sure that it's impossible to access uh, accurate news and information on there. Um, he seems to have a real uh, animus for journalism and the media and uh, taking apart one of its 
best tools for communication is probably some sort of project on his part. So that's the ultimate trolling then. But um, just in closing, though, since you work on disinformation, how it impacts elections, what do you think is going to happen in 2024? If, as I mentioned earlier, this feels like this disinformation over this current war between Israel and Hamas is bad enough, but it could get so much worse in this critical upcoming election year. Yeah, we've already seen claims from these blue check accounts that uh, election officials are being arrested or that elections have been deemed invalid. Um, Claims that have absolutely no basis in truth, but are gaining millions of views and presumably receiving the same payouts as these influencers and blue checks are from this weekend's false claims. Um, So we can anticipate the same sort of pattern of outrageously wild claims being made, um, footage and images used to uh, indicate widespread fraud in our elections that are taken completely out of context or repurposed, and then adding in the factor of generative AI as sort of a wild card, who knows what sort of deep fakes or manipulated media we'll see going forward. Well, Amistana, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Emma Steiner, who's Common Cause's Information Accountability Project Manager, where she leads efforts to protect voters from disinformation related to voting rights and democracy and to help defend against lies that undermine the integrity of our elections. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.